Amen. Yeah, keep clapping for a second because these were supposed to be lit. Merry Christmas, everybody. We did so well through the first three services. Um, Tonight, we uh, light the candle of Christ for our Advent. Um, I don't know about you, but I have loved uh, doing Advent this year. Uh, And I particularly love the fact that we've chosen to do it out of the Book of Lamentations, Uh, particularly Lamentations 3, we have anchored ourselves in, but uh, just as a reminder, the book uh, of Lamentations was written as a poetic lament, really for the loss of the city of Jerusalem, uh, and more so the exile into Babylon. Um, as the Babylonians sieged the land, they destroyed much of the city of Jerusalem. And for the Israelites, that had such a significant meaning. Um, it was so anchored in God's faithfulness. Jerusalem, uh, the, the city that David, that God gave David victory over, uh, the promised land that God promised to Abraham, and ultimately in the city of Jerusalem, the temple, where they built and God's presence dwelt among them. And so as they lost the land, the city, the temple, all of these things so anchored in who God or showing of God's faithfulness, the people were in despair. Losing the city to the Babylonians was nothing short of catastrophic for the Israelites. And it's in that moment that the Israelites are searching, asking questions for how will our faithful God come to our rescue? How will he meet us in our despair? I had the opportunity last year to uh, visit and tour around Israel. And we had this fantastic tour guide named Ron. Ron was a character, but he was Jewish. And everywhere we went, he always kind of finished with this particular phrase. And particularly if, if we were in a site that had a lot of Old Testament meaning to it, he would, he would finish up and wrap up by saying, and this is why we remember and we tell it to our children. Everywhere we went, he would say that. It was a powerful testimony to me to witness a Jewish man anchor himself in God's faithfulness, anchor himself in the history of who God has been to the Israelite people. You see, the The Israelites, they knew God to be faithful. They know him to be faithful. Throughout their history, they anchor their hope in remembering what God has done for them in the past. You know, over the past four weeks for us, we have used Lamentations 3 as a place to take a look at the characteristics of Advent. Hope, peace, joy, and love. For the Israelites, hope, they remembered the covenant that God had made with Abraham for a promised land, for descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And they remembered 
God's faithfulness to Abraham to provide a ram stuck in the thicket when he was about to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And in that moment, they find hope, seeing how God moved in their life. Peace and joy, they remember the God who led them out of Egypt, out of captivity in the Exodus. They remember the plagues. They remember the Passover. They remember the parting of the Red Sea. And in the wilderness, they remember the manna. Time and time again, God's faithfulness provides peace and joy to the Israelite people. And love, though multiple times throughout Scripture, the people of Israel fail to keep their covenant relationship with God, they remember that God never broke his covenant relationship with them. They remember and they teach it to their children. In Lamentations 3, the author is in one of those desperate states and he is drawing up, remembering God's faithfulness. So I want to read the passage for us one more time. And as we read this, I want you to consider the fact of this. This is some nearly 600 years before Christ is born. And so he is drawing upon all that history of what they, who he knows God to be in their past. But he's looking, he's searching for how is God going to show up. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26 says, Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. The faithfulness of God in his unwavering commitment to his people. That attribute that's displayed there of trustworthiness. Through all of those promises, through all of those covenants he makes with his people, they find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you this evening to see how Christ fulfills God's faithfulness in a very unique way. In the announcement of Jesus' incarnation in the Gospel of John, John says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. That is Jesus Himself. The realization of God's steadfast love, of God's steadfast faithfulness. And so as we celebrate tonight the birth of Jesus, we don't have to wonder how the Lord is going to meet us. Will he rescue us? Will he meet me in my despair? The birth of Jesus cements hope, peace, joy, love into our lives. The faithfulness of God is perpetually on display in Jesus' birth, in his life, in his sacrifice. So when this broken world brings dismay, which 
2020 has brought much of that. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder and look for how God is going to show up because he has already shown up. We have a secure foundation. We have hope that is secure in Jesus. We have peace that is secure in Jesus. We have joy that is secure in Jesus. And we have a love that is secure in Jesus. We don't have to wonder and look for him because we know where our salvation comes from. So in this season, as I'm sure we each are lamenting loss of some kind, we can sing with truly with joy in our hearts. Gloria in excelsis Deo. The Latin for glory to God in the highest. As we reflect and remember our Savior this evening, I want to encourage you to sing with joy. Fill your heart with joy at the truth that Christ cements all of this for us. So if you would stand with me and sing, glory to God in the highest, amen? Our reading from tonight is from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in the manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just pray that our hearts would rejoice tonight, Lord. May our hearts rejoice that you sent your son here, to live a perfect life, and die on our behalf, Lord. May our hearts rejoice that you are Emmanuel, God with us, Lord. So we just pray that you would focus and transform our hearts tonight as we hear from Tim. In your name I pray, amen. We're going to do this in a couple of parts this evening. Uh, If you've been with us over... The last few weeks, five weeks or so, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And Luke 2, 1 to 20 is where we fall tonight. And what I want to do in just keeping this as simple as possible is that I want to provide us room to celebrate tonight. And so what that is going to look like is that we're going to take this passage in Luke, we're going to split it into two parts, verses 1 to 7 here, and then we'll do the rest of them here in a couple of minutes. And I just want to highlight some things that we celebrate at Christmas. Now, there have been a lot of babies born over... Uh, you know, thousands of years of human history. And the reason we celebrate this particular one is because of what happens in the rest of his life. And so we gather together tonight to celebrate Christmas, but we celebrate Jesus' birth in light of the life that he lived. And so Luke, all through Luke chapter one and right here at Jesus' birth, is like dropping kind of like Hansel and Gretel breadcrumbs. That all throughout his gospel, he's going to keep pulling us back to. And if you've ever, like, you know, you've got a favorite movie or a movie you just really enjoyed and you got to the very end of it and you loved it and it caught you off guard and it was a surprise or something, some big twist at the end, and then you cycled back around and you watched it again 
And you realize that all along the way, the director or the writer was dropping you little clues about what was actually to come. And by the time you've watched it two times, three times, you start to realize, I really shouldn't have been all that surprised by the time this got to the end. That's what Luke is doing. And so what I want to do here with Jesus's life kind of in view, because we know the end, let's look at his birth. And I just want to pull out real simply like four things that we can celebrate tonight. Two of them come in the first seven verses. The first one is this. When you look at Luke chapter two, what Erica just read, the first seven verses, like four of them, or maybe the first five, four and a half verses are all about the setting. Caesar Augustus says that everybody's going to do a, a census. It's in the time of Quirinius while he was governor in Syria and Mary and Joseph. They live in Nazareth, but they've got to go to Bethlehem in order to register. Why all that information? Why is Luke giving all of that kind of information in his gospel at all? The reason is this. Luke wants you to understand. Luke wants me to understand that when God determines to act in history, there's nothing that's going to stop him. And so when he decides it's time to do something, he will bend the arc of human history in order to accomplish his purposes. So Micah chapter five, the prophet, tells us the Savior is going to be born in Bethlehem. But you get this story about Jesus' parents, and they live in Nazareth. That's like 100 miles away. How is Mary's baby going to be born in the right place if they live all the way up there? And it's like God is sitting up in heaven saying, I'm going to make them do a census. <laughs> like, watch them dance. Because the most powerful empire on the planet, the most powerful man in that powerful empire, the most advanced civilization that had ever uh, been on the face of the earth before, God says, now's my time. I'm bringing the Savior into this time, and I'm going to use that guy, that guy who thinks he's all-powerful, this empire that thinks they control everything. I'm going to use them to bring the Savior. They're like putty in my hand, and when I decide it's time to act, there's nothing that's going to stop me. It's always been that way for God. It was that way when he created. It was that way when he decided he wanted to save his people out of Egypt. It was that way when he called Abraham, right? He's always acted that way, and he always will. And the Gospel of Luke makes that really clear, because what is God also going to use this empire for? Yeah, they think they're going to kill my son. They're going to be the means by which we blow the doors open to salvation. They think they're just going to hang him like a criminal on a cross, He's going to rise from the grave. Like, I'm doing that right now. And on this side, we look back at that, and it's like Luke is dropping little breadcrumbs that somebody like Caesar, he dances in the Lord's hand. Pilate, Herod, Pharisees, some Roman soldiers, no big deal. When God determines to act, there's nothing that can stand in his way. And so we gather together at Christmas, and one of the things that we celebrate is that in the coming of this child, God bent the arc of human history to achieve his purposes. Amen? Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? There we go. That's what we come here to celebrate. But it's not just that that we come here to celebrate. It's also really interesting that by the time Luke actually like writes in here how it is that Jesus' birth came about, it's almost like an afterthought. Like, Okay, so Mary and Joseph, they were up in Nazareth of Galilee. They loaded up the donkey. They set that bad boy on cruise control, like four miles an hour for 100 miles, right? All the way down to Bethlehem. They arrive in Bethlehem, and like, there's no room at the inn. And almost as an afterthought, he says, Mary wrapped him in cloths, laid him in a manger. 
I mean, this is, this is the most like earth-shattering birth that has ever taken place. I'm not trying to talk down on your children, but this one is bigger. And Luke just kind of like says, I wrapped, she wrapped him up in claws and laid him in a feeding trough. What is that all about? That's how humble the birth of Jesus is. That like that is how he would enter into the world. And Luke would say it almost as if it's like not a big deal. Like this, this like almost like this happens every day. But what's just happened is this unbelievable picture of the humility of Jesus. And that the humble road necessary for our salvation was no deterrent to him. And so Jesus, the eternal son of God, seated at the right hand of the father. And in the next moment, not only does he have all the confines of human flesh, and he takes humanity upon himself, but he does it in the form of a baby. So it's not even that he comes as a human who could like, or a man, he is a human, as a man, right, who could like make all of his own decisions and dress himself and like clean up after himself. He comes as a baby in all the confines of that. And it's just like the front little foreshadowing of what the rest of his life is going to be because he's going to live as a poor, wandering, itinerant preacher who's supported by the kindness of those who kind of circle around his ministry. He's not going to have a home, no place to lay his head. If you're going to follow him, you're going to have to do the same thing. And then he's going to go to a cross and he's going to die a criminal's death, naked, up on a hill outside of Jerusalem where everybody can see him and mock him and scorn him. And the craziest thing of the whole deal is that he does it willingly. Is it like joyfully, gladly, he steps out of heaven and becomes a baby. And that humble road to our salvation is absolutely no deterrent. And so we come together now at Christmas on this side of things. And in light of Jesus's life, we look back and we say, of course he was born in this incredibly humble way. That was his whole life. That was who he was. And so we gather together to celebrate that that sort of humility is absolutely not daunting to Jesus. That the necessary humble road that the savior of man had to walk. He was willing to walk. And maybe the most striking moment of the whole thing is when the son of God leaves the throne of heaven and finds himself in a baby in a feeding trough in a tiny town near Jerusalem. Amen? I mean, can I get a hallelujah, right? Like, I'm on, I wouldn't be willing to do that. I mean, I probably wouldn't be willing to do that from this place. Like, I wouldn't necessarily be willing to leave liberty and take on the form of a baby with even the amount of knowledge that I have. And yet here is the eternal, omnipotent, sovereign, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God who becomes child willingly and walks a humble road that he would die so that we could be saved. And we gather together at Christmas and it's like, check your sentimentality at the door. Jesus didn't die to give you a holiday. He died so that you would worship. And this is how he's presented. Humility of a baby. The humility of a poor man walking the streets of Rome because God bent history in order to bring salvation to his people. Amen? And so we sing something like, O come all ye faithful. Right? Joyful and triumphant. 
O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. O come, let us adore him. And that is what Christmas is all about. It's about coming and adoring the Savior, celebrating the birth of the Son of God because God bent history that in humility the Savior would come in order to save. Your Bible... Most English translations split the story after verse 7. The reason for that is because Luke goes from focusing on what happens with Mary and Joseph to what's happening in a field nearby at the same time as Jesus is being born. And so you've got a break there at verse 8. And from verse 8 to verse 20, Luke talks about these shepherds who are kind of witnesses to what's happening. And so we're, we always want to be cognizant on Christmas Eve that we have kids here in the service and we want to kind of like change things up so that trying to help parents out a little bit while they're navigating kids. And so we wanted to get like a special guest reader to read the second half of this. And we tried to pay this individual a lot of money to come, but we could only get them via video. Um, and so if you would watch up here, our guest reader is going to pick up reading in Luke 2 verse 8. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Luke goes on. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. What are we celebrating at Christmas? Well, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus in light of the life of Jesus. And one of the things we see is that God will bend history in order to achieve his purposes. Another thing we see is that the humble road to our salvation was no deterrent for Jesus. Let me give you two more. And they kind of go together. They happen together in this passage. The first is that we celebrate that the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and the work of Jesus is something that causes the universe to rejoice. It's something that has always caused the universe to rejoice. Think about it this way. You might have a nativity set at home, and I don't know what yours might look like, but typically you get a, like a figure of Mary and a figure of Joseph, and you get Jesus and something that looks way nicer than the feeding trough actually would have been, and there's baby Jesus laying inside there. A lot of times you get a magi, and like sometimes they're on a camel, or like you've got a camel there with you, because clearly that's how they arrived. And then... You've got a shepherd, usually, maybe more than one shepherd. And sometimes, along with the shepherd, you get like some farm animals. Like you've got a sheep and the donkey that Mary and Joseph must have used to get down to there. And a lot of times, those animals are in like laying positions. Like what happened at the time when the moment Jesus was born was that these animals just laid down and looked up at him in the feeding trough like, oh, right? 
which is maybe how it happened, but I don't know if that's actually how it happened, but there's a shred of truth in that. And let me tell you what that shred of truth is. That shred of truth is that for all of eternity, the universe has always worshiped the glory of God. And so that sheep that maybe or maybe didn't wander in behind the shepherd and lay down there at the feeding trough in front of Jesus, when it was out just eating grass in the field before Jesus was even born, it was just sheeping around to the glory of God. Like that's what it did its entire life, pre-Jesus, post-Jesus. That's what every sheep ever has, has done. The donkey that Mary and uh, Joseph used to get to Jerusalem, to get to Bethlehem, it just donkeyed to the glory of God for its entire life. Your cat sitting at home is just kitty catting around to the glory of God. That's what all of creation for all of history has done. That's what it will always do until there's a new creation, and that new creation will just glorify God for all of eternity. And so, when this angel appears in the sky and starts talking to these shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David has been born to you, Christ, a Messiah, the Savior. And then it's like heaven splits open. And we're told that a multitude of heavenly hosts, it's literally like an army of angels, appear in the sky and they erupt. They shout or they sing, they do something. And what they shout is glory to God in the highest. It's like what's been happening in heaven for all of eternity spilled over and humanity got a glimpse of it. That's what's always been happening for all of eternity about the glory of God and the beauty of the sun. It's always been happening. It always will happen. When you think about Jesus's life, because we celebrate his birth in light of his life, that's what happens when people interact with Jesus the whole time he's on earth. Someone gets healed. What do they do? They go away praising God. Someone has a demon cast out of them. What do they do? They go away praising God. Crowds gather in to hear Jesus teach and they're just in awe and wonder and they're praising God about what is going on. Think about what we saw in Luke chapter one. Elizabeth has a son, John. Zechariah opens his mouth to sing about it. And what do all the people there do? They're rejoicing. They're treasuring it up in their heart. And so when we at Christmas come together to celebrate the birth of Jesus, what are we celebrating? We're celebrating an eternity of the universe praising the beauty and the glory of the sun. And we just get to join into it. It's not like this kind of worship began when Jesus born. It's that we got a window into it and now we have access to it because we can take part in it all of our days here on this earth. And if we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we will take part in it for all of eternity, forever and ever and ever, amen. Amen? Hallelujah. So when you get up tomorrow and you think to yourself, ah, we did the religious part of Christmas last night. We went to Christmas Eve service. Look, there's only the Jesus part. That's the whole thing. Jesus did not come to the earth to give you a holiday. He did not come to the earth to buy you a few days off of work. He came to the earth that what has been happening in heaven for all of eternity might happen here on earth among his people. He came that there might be worship. Can I get a hallelujah? And there's something that goes along with that. Because the other thing that the shepherds do in the middle of joining in with all of this praise that's been happening in the heavens for all of eternity is that they go and they share it. And so at Christmas, what we celebrate is that the birth and the life and the work of Jesus is not only praiseworthy, it's newsworthy. For Quite a while in my life, I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. And one of the things you learn about in, in any form of journalism is that something's got to be newsworthy. 
That's different than being like Instagrammable, right? Like man eats dinner, not newsworthy. Woman drinks coffee, has quiet time, not newsworthy. But what's happened here in this birth is newsworthy. And the shepherds know it immediately. How do they know it? Because heaven just spilled over to praise what just happened. And so what do they do? They go and they tell people and everyone's amazed by it. We celebrate that the coming of Jesus is worth sharing. We celebrate that the coming of Jesus for those who understand who he is, who have seen the truth of his life and therefore would be willing to celebrate his birth, that's newsworthy for us. And so part of what we do at Christmas is we gather together and we give kind of the short version, the hallelujah, glory be to God, praise be to the Lord. And yet we live our lives giving the long version to everyone who doesn't know it. That yes, we gather together once a year to celebrate a baby, but we gather together once a year to celebrate a baby because that baby became a man. And that man lived a sinless life. That man went to the cross and despite no guilt of his own, absorbed the just wrath and punishment and drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath in our place, that by faith in him, we might be saved. That's newsworthy. And it's worth sharing. So at Christmas, we gather together to celebrate the birth of the Savior in light of his life. That God would bend history to bring salvation to humanity. That the humble road to that salvation was no deterrent to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That when he was born and throughout his life, the overflow of heaven's praise became evident everywhere and now we have the opportunity to join in and not only celebrate and proclaim the work of Jesus and the life of Jesus, but also to share the news of the life of Jesus. That is why we get together at Christmas. And so maybe you just came because someone in the family is religious. Or maybe you just came or you're watching online because someone in the family is sentimental. And this feels like what we do at Christmas. I said at the start, I was there once. And then I saw the truth of Jesus. And all of a sudden, the celebration of Christmas takes on a new meaning when you understand the life of the baby that you're celebrating. Why would a group of people four times today in this church and millions of times today in churches all over the world gather together to celebrate this particular baby? Because this particular baby is no particular baby. This baby is the Savior, the Son of God. And we gather together to say, hallelujah. One, two, three. With a little more feeling. One, two, three. That's right. And then we live lives that proclaim that news and live in light of that truth. We live lives that sing out of the overflow of who we are, all glory be to Christ our King, all glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. Stand up. We are going to sing that song together. You can stay standing. We're going to close with one more song, but I undersold one part of the story. In fact, I undersold what I think is the best part of Luke's account of Jesus' birth, and it's that he wants you to understand that the packaging matters. Let me tell you about the most memorable Christmas present I ever received. It was from my mom or my dad's mom, my grandma, my dad's side. And 
she was a very meticulous lady, and so anytime you got a present from her, it was wrapped perfectly. I can still remember like how thick and nice the wrapping paper was, and it had this like uh, kind of lacy, frilly bow that went around it, and so I tore through that stuff right away. And I got down to the box. I couldn't have been older than like seven years old, eight years old. The box says Mervyn's of California on the top. It was a department store. And uh, I opened it up, and inside was what every seven- or eight-year-old little boy would want, a gold turtleneck. <laughs> it was one of those presents that, like, you wear that bad boy one time, and it's the next time you see the person that gave it to you, and then it's, like, lost for the rest of your life. But the packaging, that Mervyn's of California box, my grandma, uh, for the rest of the time that she was alive, every once in a while, you would get a present that was in a Mervyn's of California box. And I'm not kidding. I would take the wrapping paper off until I was a teenager. And I saw that Mervyn's of California box and I would shudder. Like, what is going to be inside? Can it get worse than the gold turtleneck? The packaging is what always stuck with me. There's a rhythm in Luke 2, 1 to 20. In fact, it shows up three different times. And it's that Luke wants you to understand how it is that the Savior was packaged. And so he's born and Mary wraps him in cloth, lays him in a manger. And then the angels show up and they're talking to the shepherds and they say, you're gonna go to this particular place and you will find a mother with her child. He will be wrapped in cloth, laying in a manger. The shepherds go and they arrive there. And what did they see? Mary, Joseph, and the baby, wrapped in cloth, laying in the manger. Why does the packaging matter so much? Luke wants you to understand. Here's the presentation of the Savior. But he's dropping little breadcrumbs, remember, because by the time you get to the end, Jesus is crucified on a cross, and a man from Arimathea named Joseph comes and takes the body down, prepares it for burial, and then we're told in Luke 23, verse 53, that he took Jesus' body, wrapped it in fine linen, and laid it in a tomb. Right from the beginning, Luke says, here's your Savior. This is the presentation. All the glory of heaven that the angels would spill over out of the throne room of heaven, praising this baby who's wrapped in cloth, laying in the dirt, basically. He would live his entire life you would get to the end, he'd be crucified on a cross, and then he would be wrapped in cloth and laid down in the dirt. And here is your Savior, but he's not staying in the dirt. That's what Luke wants you to understand, because one day, the third day, he's coming out of that tomb, and he's trampling over death on his way out. Are you alive? Hallelujah! Like, that's what he wants you to see. Here is your Savior, wrapped in cloth, laying in a manger. Dead, wrapped in cloth, laying in a tomb. But he's coming back one day, robed in white, riding on a horse. That is your Savior. So we show up at Christmas to celebrate the birth of Jesus in light of the life of Jesus. And the whole thing is packaged in just the utmost humility. Wrapped in cloth laying in some dirt. Here is your Savior, but he is the King of heaven, and he will die for your sin, and he will resurrect and trample over the power of sin and death in your life, and one day he's coming back, and you're going to go and be with him, and there's not going to be any more cloth and dirt, because it's going to be white robes and glory. That is what we celebrate 
at Christmas. That is why we would gather together in places like this and lift up a song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close with that. Joy to the World. Thank you for being here tonight. Merry Christmas. We look forward to seeing you again soon.